Hello, and you're very welcome to The Week That Really Was with John McGurk and Sarah Ryan. It is the 20th of April, 2023. We're recording this on a very sunny lunchtime on a Thursday afternoon. Uh, and Sarah, we are joined by a fascinating guest this week. But before we get to that, how are you? I'm good, John. Can't complain. I've been consumed this week with our legal uh, story of the week, the release of the monk, and um, being found not guilty. And I, I, won a, I won a decent bet with my other half on that regard. So I'm happy. Yes, well, it's the, as I said on Twitter, it's the, he's the first monk in Ireland in a long time to get the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, uh, fair play to him. And uh, you know, I, I had a piece all written about the special criminal court, and I'm sure our guest will disagree with me on this when we come to him in a second. But my view of the special criminal court is that it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's not an institution we should have. When El Chapo, the world's largest drug dealer, was was um, arrested and tried in the US. They managed to have a jury for that. And to me, a court in which they, the, the, the state publicly states this person is too dangerous to be tried by a jury is, effect, is effectively compromises the presumption of innocence. But I've always been a bit of a weakling um, when it comes to the courts and criminal justice. So maybe maybe I'm too soft. But anyway, they did find him innocent, which I have to say, like your other half, I was surprised by. Anyway, folks, um, enough natter. Uh, we want to get to the main event. We are joined this week by somebody who I've admired for many years, one of Ireland's best and most incisive writers. You might not agree with him every week. I certainly have, have had times where I haven't always agreed with what this person has written, but I'm always been blown away by the quality of the writing and the quality of the thinking. And sadly, for reasons we'll come to in the conversation, he doesn't have the same platform that he once did. Uh, nevertheless, we're happy to give him some kind of a small platform here and have a conversation with Mr. Kevin Myers. Kevin, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. On this lovely April day, sun is shining and I'm feeling the top of my form. Um, I want to start by asking you uh, sort of wh- where are you at in, in, in life now? Because when, when the public last heard from you, obviously it was in uh, the unfortunate circumstances where you, along with a no- number of other people at that time in Irish life, George Hook being the, the most prominent example, um, fell foul to what in my mind was a kind of hysteria where there was a, a sense that you were no longer allowed to make a mistake and get the benefit of the doubt. You wrote a column in the Sunday Times in which uh, you made a, a, a comment, I think it was about Vanessa Feltz, the British TV presenter, and, and you mentioned that she was Jewish. Uh, and you made a comment which you thought was a fair comment on Jewish culture and which other people then claimed was anti-Semitic. And then you were never heard from again, essentially. And that's a, that's a very brief summary of it. But uh, how, how have you been coping with that? Um, and, and can you let people know how you are, number one, and, and, and maybe talk about that a little bit? Because I think it's, it's unfortunately uh, and wrongly what a lot of people still associate their last memory of you uh, of, uh, as being. Yeah, I'm happy to tell you that I'm extremely well. And I'm sorry to tell the lynch mob that uh, my health is extraordinarily good, which was not their intention. Um, what was done to me six years ago was outrageous, but it was now, as we now know, perfectly normative. I don't mean normal, normative. In the, it, it, was, it set new standards of normality, and this, uh, the, these new standards of uh, normality were deranged and culturally counterproductive. I regret what I said about um, those two broadcasters on BBC, merely because what I said was misunderstood. It was a genuine compliment that they had negotiated a very good deal with the BBC, and quite rightly too. I mentioned their Jewish background as a compliment because anyone who knows me uh, will know that I have been a, a steadfast supporter of Israel. 
for the last 20 years or, or more. But what happened to me was deliberate. I'm quite sure I was set up by somebody within the Sunday Times to whom I or to which I had filed my copy 24 hours early on Thursday. So they had plenty of time to consider what I had, had written all on Thursday and on, on Friday and on Saturday. But the attacks on me began at one minute past 12 on the Sunday morning on the last Sunday of uh, July 2017. So somebody accessed my column from London uh, clearly with the, inst in, with the intention of denouncing me as an anti-Semite. And the attacks grew through the morning, in the early hours of the morning, so that when I got a phone call from John Burns, my page editor, at, I was in West Cork at um, about 10 to 9 that Sunday morning. He said, you're in dire trouble and your career might be over. And sure enough, it was. Uh, and what happened then was that Roy Greenslade, who has since been outed as an agent of the provisional IRA, joined in the attacks. Now, he has a very wide reach into mm -hmm. Archie and into across the media around the world. And he denounced me as an anti-Semite and a Holocaust denier. The Holocaust denier lie uh, resulted from uh, a column I'd written 15 years ago about dealing with the Holocaust. And what I said in that was the majority of Jews who were murdered in the, the final solution were not murdered in concentration camps, but were murdered by uh, German and Austrian and Spanish soldiers by hand. We're talking about many millions of people being systematically mown down by Gentiles. I'm That's not a, a Holocaust denier in the sense that I deny that. Anyway, the fact is that the Greenslade thing went into RTE. Uh, we know his RTE feed, and I was called a Holocaust denier on Morning Ireland on, the, on, on Monday. So although my career was essentially killed by an internet storm on the Sunday, it, by Monday it had taken on a really malevolent form mm -hmm. in, in a personal sense. And... That stuff that was sent on Morning Island went round the world to reinforce the lies that had been sent about me on, on, on the Sunday. So not merely was my career um, finished on, on, on the Sunday by the falsehoods being perpetrated me, but about me. These were then, if you like, formally ordained by the national broadcaster. They were confirmed. And at that point and thereafter, um, nobody in the mainstream media would have any time for me. I became an utterly untouchable pariah, not in the eyes of the Irish Jewish community, who stood steadfastly with me. They said to call Kevin Myers an anti-Semite is a, a grotesque uh, distortion of the truth, and, um, and equally to call me a, a Holocaust denier. The other aspect, of course, this was this was I was a misogynist, which was the main theme followed by the Irish Times. They knew in the Irish Times they couldn't call me a Holocaust denier because most of my columns about the Holocaust, and there were many of them, 30 or 40 of them in my career, uh, affirmed the existence and the evil nature of the Holocaust. They didn't go down that road. They called me a misogynist. The, the two primary candidates for that, or the two primary critics, are calling, calling me a misogynist with Fintan O'Toole and Cathy Sheridan. Well, you know, being a misogynist is quite a serious matter. It means you hate women. Mm -hmm. I mean, all women, because they're women. 
neither one of those two columnists had ever called me a misogynist ever in their journalistic history. Never once before. But only when I was being denounced as misogynist on the internet did they join in, which doesn't exactly suggest to me that they are particularly heroic defenders of the female species. Well, they, they were your and, colleagues. And that they, was they, that. They were your colleagues for many years. You mentioned they were my colleagues in the Irish Times. 30 or 40 colleagues. They had been my colleagues in the Irish Times before I went to the Irish Independent, and then obviously after that I went to the Sunday Times. Hmm. Now, it's a serious matter, of course, for anyone, a, a, a hate, a group hater. You know, if you hate black people or, or Jews or travelers or Irish people or English people, it's a very serious allegation. It has to be, when it's detected, it has to be, first of all, revealed and then confirmed. But my theory now, is... these two colonists could have had any opportunity to do that in the previous 20 years. They never had done so. My theory, for what it's worth, Kevin, is they don't actually believe it. I, I think often when these things are thrown around, you, you're a very prescient point there, I think, when you mentioned that they'd never said it before, is because they, did, they don't actually believe it. They don't believe, because they, they've worked with you, they've read your stuff, they may have disagreed with it, but they don't believe that you hate women. I mean, I, I don't believe that you hate women. I, 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 I don't think anybody would believe that you sit there at home stewing in your juices at the fact that uh, the female sex exists and you don't like them. It's just a word that they wanted to throw around to demonstrate that they are not like you. It's a virtue signal. That's what it is. It's a virtue signal, oh, yes, at, a virtue your, signal. At, at your but expense. It, it, but it, it is, in the right circumstances, it's like called, calling somebody a racist or anti-Semite. Mm -hmm. um, it, 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 it's, a, it's a death blow. I mean, it's intended to, to, to end one's career, not just my career, anyone who's, who's given that sort of accusation. It's intended to end the career, and it did end my career. That people, uh, you don't join a lynch mob unless you want to have the consequence of a lynch mob, and the, 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 the vital term in a lynch mob is not quite mob, but lynch. That is the outcome. That's the intended outcome, and that's, that's what they got. And in throughout that time, obviously the politicians joined in, Leo Varadkar and Francis Fitzgerald. Francis Fitzgerald, who was about to go the same way herself, congratulated the Sunday Times on the appropriate action in sacking me. The Sunday Times had sacked me that Sunday morning without even making a phone call to me. They publicly sacked me and said that I would never be employed by the Sunday Times ever again, as if they had just discovered all this time, I was a secret anti, a secret Nazi, and secret anti-Semite. It's remarkable. So that was a, an actionable um, statement by the the Sunday Times. The contrary to what people think, I am only a citizen and a subject of the Irish Republic. I have no other passport, no other national identity. It, uh, it's the first time in the history of independent Ireland that the Irish government sided with a multinational in sacking publicly sacking and publicly humiliating that Irish national. Both Francis Fitzgerald and Leo Varadkar, then the Taoiseach, denounced me, and Francis Fitzgerald in particular congratulated the Sunday Times on the way it had treated me. And have then you, all the other media joined in. Of course they did. In the, the castigation. I want to ask me. you, have you encountered any of these people since? The people who denounced no. you at the time? You no, I tell you what I do have encountered. I never cease to encounter. It happened to me in Duns last week. Two people within three minutes came up to me, one a man and the other a woman, came up to me and said, look, what happened to you was really terrible. And everyone we know, they knew individually, knew, uh, feel the same way as I do. That is to say they were shocked and appalled. 
that whatever I had said, whatever mistakes or error of judgment I had made, I was no longer to be heard ever in the Irish media and essentially thereafter in the world media. Mm. And it was a very telling example of what can happen to somebody when you have that fatal alliance of social media, which we all know it's, 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 it's trite, it's rubbish, it's, it's, it's garbage, being talking, combined then with mainstream media. And that's, talking, that can be a lethal combination. You're talking uh, to two inveterate users of social media for our sins, unfortunately. But Sarah, you had mentioned um, to me during the week when we were talking about Kevin coming on that you had thought some of the things he had said well in advance of what happened to him were very pressing. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, first of all, I'm struck by, you know, even though it's quite a while ago, we're seeing the, like, we we saw this was the first or one of the first kind of test runs of the playbook of, you know, setting fire to somebody on the internet and seeing what happens. And, and it worked and it's been used multiple times since. What I think is really fascinating about this in particular is that it was the first or one of the first examples of where... It, Yes. Okay, Kevin, you're saying that, you know, you regret that you, the way you said it in the article originally, but all of the accusations that were being made were were, were simply untrue. As I recall, headlines from old Irishman diaries were, were printed that weren't actually, the headlines weren't selected by you and they weren't actually reflective of what was in the articles at all. And the media, the, the mob just ran with it and and completely, you know, decided what the facts were, even though they weren't true. And, you know, we we're seeing that I was the same with George Hook, that what George Hook was accused of saying wasn't exactly what he said. And most people, unfortunately, they run with the story on social media. They don't listen to the facts. They don't read the article. They don't listen to the interview or whatever it might be. And um, it's it's really scary. And at no point did anybody uh, of your colleagues or or the newspapers that you'd written for come out and, and, and clarify any of those things. As far yeah, as that's I... That's right, Sarah. The, 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 the point is that... Any of the colleagues, my colleagues, in the former colleagues in the Irish Times or Irish Independent, because they joined in too, uh, mm. could have said, well, actually, we, 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 we've got an archive here which shows what he said and what he didn't say. And he's yeah. never been accused of anti-Semitism before. And he could not possibly be accused of a Holocaust denial because the Jewish Representative Council said this is a lie. This is a complete falsehood. Not one single person, not one single person in the media uh, re- repeated the, the truth about uh, the, my, defend, my being defended by the Jewish Representative Council in, in, in Ireland. So this is a strange thing where you had a completely untrue version of Kevin Myers being turned into a much more important and much more vital and much more kind of unforgettable parody of Kevin Myers called the Kevin Myers of the Internet, Kevin Myers of social media, who was a diabolical creature. Now, if I had been somebody reading about this Kevin Myers in Australia or America for where I got many emails, I would say this man is utterly loathsome. He hates mm-hmm. Jews, he hates women, he denies the Holocaust took place. Now, not one single female, not one single column, uh, female column, colleague of mine in any newspaper had ever said before that I was a uh, 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 misogynist and the Jews said, well, this man is not the Holocaust, and, I, and he's, he's far from being anti-Semite, he's pro-Israel. You did. Yeah. None you did, of this you, happened. You, you, and you you've did. spoken at events since on their invite. But in your book, what I found really fascinating is you said uh, that in the week 
after the story broke, the IN, the INM, the INM titles had 14 columns attacking you and the Irish Times had nine. I mean, they know yeah, very right. well. They know very well that career wise, that's unsurvivable for anyone. You know what I mean? They know what they're doing. It is a lynch mob. And as you said yourself, the idea is to lynch. It's not to critique. It's not to, you know, have a debate. It's not to establish. It's to lynch. And that's what they're doing. And they know they're doing it. And it's happened since. And now with social and media. I do we- wonder about the editors of both those newspapers authorizing that. Now, O'Toole in the Irish Times had two columns attacking me over five days uh, uh, or four days. Now, b- both of them were based on the, the allegation, the false allegation that I was a misogynist. He had 20 years before then to call me a misogynist. He never did once. Now, I, I, this is something you can look on the Irish Times archive. It, there, it's there. I, could, I, I subscribe to the Irish Times because I need access to its archive. No, no one in the Irish Times has ever called me a, a misogynist before, ever. No single employee, no journalist working for the Irish Times had ever called me a misogynist. Ever. You, you did take legal action, um, and I know obviously you're probably limited in what you can say about that. But you did. No, I'm or, not. Or, 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 well, I'm glad to hear it. Or he did <laughs> end up. Or he did end up apologising to you for the disgraceful anti-Semitic, sorry, the Holocaust denial claim, didn't they? Yeah. What I can't disclose to you is the nature of the damages or the size of the damages. But I think it has been reported by the Irish Independent that it was substantial. That's not incorrect. But the Irish Times and RTE never reported, uh, RTE News never reported the settlement, which was out of court. Now, the, what happened was that the Irish Times, sorry, I beg your pardon, RTE was obliged to make an abject uh, apology to me, acknowledging that they had done me serious damage by calling me a Holocaust denying, denier and uh, affirming this basic truth that I had for many decades attested to the reality and the evils of Hitler's final solution. Uh, And uh, Archie offered an apology, Brian Dobson offered an apology um, in very sincere and heartfelt ways because he's an honest man. Uh, But that was transmitted at uh, four minutes to eight uh, to nine o'clock on the the, the morning of the settlement by, uh, but, that was it. Archie News never four minutes later um, brought, uh, broadcast any uh, news of, the, uh, of that settlement. And the Irish Times, even though the Irish Times have sent a press release, never reported it. So if you hadn't heard the apology at four minutes to, to nine, you wouldn't know it had ever been made. And it was removed from Archie's podcast. That is really sh- shameful. They went to the trouble of broadcasting then the, the, the apology, then made sure that anyone's trying to catch up with the apology or trying to catch up with that morning's broadcast wouldn't ever hear it. And no news outlet in, 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 in RTE station on the radio or television ever heard of the nature of the apology. Now, this is a public service broadcaster. Its obligation is to tell its listeners, its viewers, the, not merely the truth about Ireland, but the truth about itself, when he got something really seriously wrong and had done serious damage to an innocent journalist, as they had done to me. Mm-hmm. But they never admitted that. And more incredibly, the Irish Times um, did exactly the same thing. Now, I wrote to the one, there's one man, one single person, who's on both the Irish Times Trust 
on the Irish Times board. His name is Professor John Hegarty. I wrote to him pointing out that the Irish Times had failed in its fundamental duty to report the truth about a former columnist of the Irish Times. That's me. And I wrote for the Irish Times for 25 years. And I said that the Irish Times has an obligation to tell the truth. And this was an opportunity for the John Hegarty as a chairman of both main bodies in the Irish Times to undo the damage the Irish Times had done to itself and also to me by not reporting the truth. I never even got an acknowledgement from, from him. So we're dealing with a, a capacity to uh, stay silent in the face of falsehood that is, in my own personal experience, un unprecedented in the Irish media. Mm -hmm. And th this, as Sarah has already indicated, was a primary step in the creation of a series of falsehoods which have helped destroy the ability to have a, a free and open conversation in Irish life about important matters. What, what, what happens, it has happened, is that the vast majority of journalists who want to stay in their career simply comply and conform. To dissent is to bring financial ruin to oneself and to one's end, to end one's career. Now, I am, by any, all standards these days, I am an old man. So that the destruction of my career uh, didn't mean destruction of my livelihood. But were I half a century younger than I am, my life would be over economically. Uh, had I been a journalist who was destroyed aged 25 at the time or something like that and had been destroyed by the media and, and the social media as I was, I would never work again. Not merely as a journalist or as a broadcaster, but I'd never get a job as a school teacher or a civil servant. My career would be ended. And that is the purpose of these, these lynch mobs. It is to end not just that particular conversation, but to destroy the, the possibility of uh, reappearing in the media. Yeah, and it's a very terrifying thing because... Uh, it's, it was participated in not just by journalists, but by politicians and even by civil servants like Sean Donlan, who was chairman of the, the Press Complaints Commission at that time. Sarah? I think it's, uh, I mean, I think it's, I think you're absolutely right in what you're saying, but I think it's scarier than that in the sense that I think part of the reason why your career would have been over is because you don't, you're not, and never were part of the right group in terms of opinions, if you know what I mean. Like, first of all, I think it's scary that if somebody who is, you know, has is clearly not an anti-Semitic, has spoken about Israel, you know, as you had, can still be have their career ended for being a so-called Holocaust denier. What chance does anybody else have of not of not going the same road? But also, you know, like we I'm not going to name any names, but there have been people who are on the right, who have the, the correct opinions and come from the correct um, views on everything, who've made mistakes, who I've watched be redeemed and, and allowed to come back into public life later after, you know, a slight hiatus. And if you are not of that group, if you are not of the right opinions on all of the hot topics of the moment, you don't get that. So you're right. Your career would have been over if you're 25, but it wouldn't have been if you'd had the right opinions on all of the right things. Well, uh, oh, you're not, that's, uh, that's, uh, you're right. that's uh, the nature of the, the forcible consensus now, that people are not interested in hearing opinions and they're certainly not interested in hearing dissent. What they want to do is to have their own opinions confirmed in, in the, the echo chamber. And this is one of the reasons why newspaper sales are, are failing. 
why people don't watch television, because they're getting the same garbage being turned out by the same sort of self-righteous prigs that did me. And they just, that's not interesting. If nobody mm. wants to hear self-righteous priggery, it's mm. boring, it's sanctimonious, it's tiresome, it's tedious, it's entirely you know, self-reproducing, it doesn't mean anything. But that's what is, is journalism is now reduced to. And this, this notion of being writing to self-satisfy yourself is emotionally, intellectually, in every other regard, it's, it's, it's pleasing for the authors, but it's not pleasing for the readers. No one's, going to, no one's ever going to say, well, I want to have more sanctimonious twaddle. That's, mm. that's not the reason why anyone ever opened a newspaper. I must correct you, Sarah. I used to have really right-on, cool uh, opinions. Uh, and I, mean, I was once upon a time absolutely in the liberal mob. And I look back on those days with embarrassment and shame. But it, it was, it was various, various things were happening to me. Um, when I, I began, if I dissented, say going to the Irish Times, I would, a, a, a column that was a little bit off-center, then people would actually sneer at me as they walked past my desk. Ah, oh, being a right-winger today, Myers, we never used first name or second name terms in the Irish Times. If somebody addressed you by your surname, they were disapproving of you. The sneer. And the, the liberal sneer is the most important force in journalism these days, because you don't, you don't need to be edited by an editor or in, even edited by the disapproving reader. You have a colleague putting you down, and maybe a yeah. second colleague putting you down. And that, that, you, don't want to do, you don't want to revisit that territory again. So when I went, started working with in the Irish Times, I, I, I was because of information technology enabled me to work from home. I found... I, I could write columns without having to go into the newsroom and brave the sneers. The single put down is one bad enough, but having happened two or three times in a day, you don't want to revisit that. Working from home enabled me to do it without that, the, the sneer. And then I began the process of discovery and being able to speak freely meant I could think clearly so that I didn't have my natural instincts to inquire not merely of other people, but of myself, why I was thinking and saying the things that I was saying. Those instincts, which should be free, had been curtailed by the, the consensus within the newsroom. Once I was able to be free from and work from home and think from home, I began to depart from all the, the conventions which had li limited my, my journalism and limited my thinking. So I was absolutely in the anti-Israel mob in the 1980s and the 1990s. And then I realized when I began to look at the, the reality of the Palestinian intifada and the terrorism that PLO was not merely getting up to, but justifying, that I had been wrong in Israel. And I was an ardent supporter of the feminist movement and the National Women's Council used to send me their uh, feminist calendar every year in the 1980s because I would write enthusiastic stuff about the feminist agenda. And then I realized, actually, I thought about it, that men and women are not the same thing, and there's no sure things like equality, and all of the pious aspirations which have informed and corrupted Irish life and Western European life, these had to be challenged. So I am a critic of feminism, which doesn't make me a misogynist. I don't actually know, personally know, a single woman who approves of any of the, the nonsense that comes from the National Women's Council. <laughs> no, so neither do I. Neither do I. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly that. Do you, how, how many of your female colleagues 
Now, the no. National Women's Council, for example, uh, uh, attacked me as, uh, as a misogynist, but they said nothing about Ali Salim, who was on Archie television with, a few weeks later, calling for the legalization of, the, of, 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 of female circumcision in Ireland. And the National mm -hmm. Women's Council of Ireland stayed silent about that while denouncing me as a misogynist. You, you, you've identified, if I can say, Kevin, when you talk about newsrooms and the sneering within newsrooms, something that, that is my central critique of, of modern Irish society, which is that we tell ourselves on the one hand that this is now a new, liberal, tolerant, open Ireland. But actually, we still live in the land of the twitching curtains. People are terrified to speak their opinions because... You know, it is often said that back, you know, when 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 Archbishop McQuaid, Lord rest his soul, was 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 governing us all gently with his crozier, that you know you you were afraid for your career to speak out and offer an opinion on contraception or whatever it might have been that was against the teachings of the church. Today in Ireland, we have I can't imagine being a young twenty-something in a newsroom with a differing opinion on uh, climate change or transgenderism. And, and being confident enough to articulate that and to ask questions on that basis, because you would be frozen out. You would be made a pariah. Um, even if, uh, you know, with you, there had to be a, 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 an, an actual lynching because you were too, too, too synonymous a figure, too, too well-known a figure in the country just to drop. You, you actually had to be discredited. But if you're just somebody who's young and doesn't have the platform and power that you did, then, then people are discarded every day of the week or, or, or live in fear of being discarded and locked out of society and their social groups and their college friend circles and their, their women's discussion groups or whatever it might be, if they even dare and say, for example, I think immigration into the country is too high. And so what you have is this kind of division in society where the only people with the confidence to speak out on these issues are the people with nothing left to lose. So you end up in a situation where you've got mainly working class protests, for example, about immigration, while a lot of middle class people silently you know, root for them but say nothing because they know that if they speak up, they'll be denounced as a far right hate monger. That terrifying fear that dominates Irish society of speaking your mind lest you be called something, I think is... is arrives and drives from what you identify as happening in Irish newsrooms in the 1990s, where the, the Irish media tells you on the one hand, oh, we're fair and balanced and unafraid and, and, and completely call the shots. No, they don't. Irish newsrooms are dominated by a cabal of left-wingers who enforce their social and political mores ruthlessly, and they do it by social ostracization and the fear they exert on their younger colleagues that writing the wrong opinion might impact promotion. Um, yes, no prospects. question about that. I, I was contacted about 15 years ago by a young um, journalist whose name I can't remember, but he told me he went to one of the media studies co courses in, in, in one of the Dublin institutions, and I can't remember which one it was. But at his um, interview to get the job, he was asked what um, journalist he liked. And he said, well, actually, the journalist I read most, uh, forgive me for saying this, the, the journalist I like most of all, and I like his writing, and I like his opinions, is, is Kevin Myers. Um, he was given a place in, in whatever institution it was, and he was called aside by the head of the journalistic department and said, look, um, you're good, but don't ever mention Kevin Myers here again because you'll get nowhere if you think highly of him or you, you speak highly of him because Kevin Myers is simply an unacceptable journalist in our, in our world. And... That's what happens to the young young people who they go they enter these media studies courses with 
lots of bright ideas and lots of ambition, and they are told what to think. They're told about the glories of multiculturalism. They're told about the glories of, of feminism. They're told about the horrors of imperialism and colonialism and so on. They can't write a sentence. They don't know what the difference in a colon and a semicolon. That they, both of them is where, you know, where is the end of thought as far as they're concerned. They don't know anything about how to construct a sentence or how to make an argument, but they do know how to conform and comply. And they yeah. also know what they need to do to, to, to make a career for themselves. And that oh. means going along with what the editor says. The worst of all, worst of all, Kevin, they don't know how to think. And that's, I, I say it all the time on this podcast, that there's just not enough thinking going on and people don't think, formulate opinions. Like you've talked about your career just there, about how you thought one way and you evolved and you changed. And there now there's just absolute truth, your absolute opinion, and there's nobody's allowed to evolve their thinking at all to, to, to rethink things, to reframe whatever way they think about something. And that's, for me, the biggest problem. But um. I have to tell you kind of a funny story because I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I've, we've never met, but um, you loomed quite large in my in my life growing up. Um, so my father was a Fianna Fáil uh, TD minister, junior minister at one point in an MEP, Owen Ryan, and um, oh, I always tell okay. I I always tell people that, you know, my parents were very liberal and and but very very keen on us developing our own opinions on things and consequently um myself and my sister and my brother ended up with quite quite strikingly different views of my parents on some issues anyway um my dad used to you know argue with me about all of my opinions on things that when sky first came to ireland you know you get this sky um the tv and you had all these news channels and i I'd never seen anything like it. Like there's just, there was Fox and there was this and there was that, whatever. And my dad came in one day and found me watching Bill O'Reilly interviewing Ann Coulter. And he was absolutely <laughs> horrified that I was watching this. And uh, he was like, what is this? Like, what are you watching? And I said, oh, I just, I just, it's just so fascinating to watch people talk. And they talk so differently. They think so differently. It doesn't mean I agree with them. It just means I'm just fascinated that they think this way and you never see anything like this in Ireland. You never see anybody talking about things so differently. And so a few days later, he came home and he threw this newspaper down in front of me and it was your column. And he said, this is something differently in Ireland. And for years afterwards, he used to say to me, your mate, did you see your mate's article this week? And we used to talk about your articles all the time. And he'd say, your mate said this this week and your mate said that. And you're my mate, unbeknownst to yourself. Well, you're I'm, you're I'm, my I'm, mate I'm, for I'm flattered to be your mate in 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 the sense that you 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 mean it in an entirely platonic and distant way because you and I have never had the or I have never had the pleasure and privilege of meeting. But of course, I knew, I knew your father not well. I knew of your father, uh, but I'm I'm impressed by the way that you were reading uh, or listening to Anne Coulter so many years ago because she's quite a, a recent arrival in my life. What I like about her is the uh, her willingness to to challenge the the orthodoxies, and it's not easy in America. Because the, the the debate is much more kind of varied in America, but the hatred it, it, it generated in discourse in America is terrifying, and mm -hmm. she's had to put up with. I've seen some of the stuff where she's been lynched on, in in on, on on campus. She's held down and abused, and it takes an enormous amount of courage. And thank God she has it to cope with that sort of thing. So. The problem is, as, as John was saying, that we have reproduced in secular Ireland a new form of the totalitarianism uh, that 
clerical totalitarianism that dominated um, Irish life from independence. And the, the shocking thing is that we, we, we commemorated, celebrated um, 20, 1916 and 2016 it, by creating pretty much the same sort of society that had emerged in, in 1920s, completely conformist, completely subject, completely cowed by a new authority. The authority didn't have a dog collar or a wimple. It, it, the, the, the new authority was clerical and, sorry, it was lay, and it, it, it derived its authority from no source. The thing about the, the Catholic Church or any church, it derives its authority from divine inspiration. But the new bishops of Ireland, they derive their authority entirely from what revelations occur to them in their, their limited brains. And you, when you, you knew what John Charles McQuaid was going to say when he was Archbishop of Dublin, you have no idea what the new dictates will be from our new um, masters. You have no or mistresses. For the most part, they are still male, the authority figures, the cultural authority figures. And you have no idea what they're going to do. You have no idea if they're going to set about you. If they're going to invent a new falsehood about you upon which, upon which cross they will then crucify you. You have no idea what it's going to be. So the young person, young journalist, I know to finish the sentence here, a young journalist cannot know how to be right when he or she sets out to write an article. So I, I, think, you're, I think you're entirely on the money there, so I won't follow up with that. What I wanted to follow up with was, so since we have you on the show, and since this is a podcast that's generally about current affairs and the sort of state of the nation is, your assessment of the state of the nation, your assessment of the cultural, political, economic health of the nation, because I mean, there are a few interesting things happening at the moment. The, in economic terms, if you look at the, the 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 pure balance sheet, this week we learned the government has a 12 billion euro annual surplus. So clearly, there's money flowing into the coffers. Um, we have a, a very interesting political system where your old friends in Sinn Fein, Kevin, are marching onwards toward the power. We have a, a kind of cultural revolution brewing in the country. And yet we seem to be a remarkably placid people for that. We don't see massive protests. It's like a remarkable, John. I don't understand how we are placid. I take it from the point of view, from a selfish point of view. Uh, I have seen my, I'm purely selfish. Okay, very boring for every one of you, and you two in particular, you youngsters. I have seen my pension fund destroyed by the double recession of the last three years. I have seen inflation eat away at my life savings and the real, the real value of my pension fund, which will be exhausted before my life is out. Every year, the government compels me to take 5% of my pension fund in, and, and spend it. Now, I don't spend it. The government gets half of it. Now, that half goes to pay for the pensions of the public service who do not have to pay, do not have to create uh, a pension fund because they get this paid out of current account. Mm -hmm. So I am paying for the public service pensions from a depleting account over which I have no control. And inflation at 10% will destroy my life savings within a decade or so. And there will be no compensation for me by, from the government to which I have been giving my life, my life savings. This is, I, I look at financial ruin within the next decade. I mean, irreversible total financial ruin. And nobody is saying anything about this. And the, the politicians, least of all, because they are the most protected. They don't have to contribute to a pension fund because theirs is guaranteed by the state. It comes out of current account. So all the civil servants now looking for 
compensation for COVID and compensation for inflation. They'll get both. And they'll be paid for by those of us in the private sector. That's us three, you, Sarah, you, John, and me. Now, you've got some future ahead. Maybe you'll be able to rescue what remains of your capital savings. I cannot. I have no possibility of earning for money because of what happened to me. And I can see my capital fund being depleted irrevocably and irreversibly and without complaint. And that's the most amazing thing that nobody in Ireland is talking about the disproportionate power and disproportionate financial returns being enjoined by those in the public sector being paid for in the private sector. Now, you asked me, John, early on about the state of Ireland and the, the rise of Sinn Féin, who embody the, 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 absolutely the quintessential values of the new left, which means protecting the public service, because if they do that, they're almost guaranteed to get into power and in, in that process can rewrite history that the, 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 the war they began, I was there when they began the war. I was there in Belfast when they began the war, when the civil rights bill had been impassed and empowered. And it, there were no differences between the voting rights between Catholics and Protestants, and there were very few in the, in, previously. But they, they were non-existent. The, the, there was a, the, Derry, the Derry was run by a, a civil commission. Um, senior officers were mostly Catholic. So there was justice in Northern Ireland in 1971. The IRA went to war with that justice, with that newly just state, and helped destroy it. And 60% of all the deaths of the Troubles were, were caused by the re Republicans. Yet they are rewriting the, the, their war, their unnecessary and entirely voluntary war, as a form of civil rights activity. And that's what most young people think today about the Troubles. That the, the, the IRA, instead of abducting and torturing people like Gene McConville, who was not mentioned once, I'm sure, during the 25-year celebration of the, the Belfast Agreement, not even when Jerry Adams appeared on television. Nobody m reminded us what the IRA had done, lining up 10 Protestant workmen and machine-gunning them, and then giving all 10 of them headshots to finish them off. No one reminded us of that. So the, 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 the IRA has got away with crimes which would have merited treatment in the Nuremberg War Crimes Tribunals in 1945 and 46, and young people believe the opposite, that they're somehow or other a virtuous organization determined to get civil rights and equal rights for men and women, Catholics and Protestants alike. I heard and last young week. people, once, he, once Sinn Féin are in government, will not even have the faintest idea of the reality, the stark and terrible and Nazi reality of, 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 of Sinn Féin. And it's not coincidental that uh, Mary Lou MacDonald first came to eminence, and I first wrote about her in 2003, 20 years ago, when she appeared at the memorial to honor the memory of Sean Russell, who was a Nazi collaborator who died in a U-boat on his way to Ireland in 1940 to spread the Nazi message. And you that's where she began her headline career. And I said in my, one of my many mistaken columns in the Irish Times, I said this woman cannot be elected to the European Parliament because the electors in Ireland would never tolerate such a woman. And guess what? I was wrong. And now she's most likely to be Taoiseach and unapologetically a supporter of Sean Russell, a Nazi stooge. There's no other country in Europe would tolerate such a person as a political leader. There's no other country in Europe would tolerate a statue to a Nazi stooge. This is unique within the European Union, unique 
from the Galway Bay to Vladivostok, that no such memorial would be tolerated in the entire landmass of Europe, yet we have such a memorial in Ireland. You mentioned um, you mentioned about the young people and what they believe. I don't know if you saw last week, you probably didn't, Kevin, that Aoife Grace Moore, who is a, a winner of the Journalist of the Year accolade, handed out by her colleagues last year, I believe, former uh, political correspondent Sunday Times, was on a podcast in Northern Ireland talking about the origins of the Troubles and, and all of the issues that happened up there. And she said that before, um, back in the 1970s, Catholics couldn't vote, which is, of course, flat out untrue. Catholics could always vote. And in fact, I don't know how she could have said that when Jerry Fitt was elected Republican Labour MP for West Belfast to Westminster in 1966. Well, that, and that, in, in, that's what she said. And I'm quoting her directly. I'm quoting her directly, and uh, and and that's and that's what she said. She said Catholics. So who was this woman? So it's uh, so, so who so was she? Who said this? Aoife, Aoife, Aoife Grace Moore. She's uh, she was last year's winner. Oh, I've seen her uh, name. She's an idiot. I, I don't know what she is, but I know that she was wrong, um, and she was clearly wrong. Um, and 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 what's more, was unchallenged. But that perception yeah. I have noticed, and maybe you've noticed this too, Sarah, is everywhere. I mean, if you ask, and there are polls that show it. If you ask young young Irish people, um, and this is one reason I, 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 Sarah was making the point on this show last week, Kevin. And unfortunately, I think she's right that the attacks on Sinn Fein about the IRA's record are are kind of fruitless at this stage because people simply shrug their shoulders and don't believe them. There are polls showing that younger Irish people, if asked who killed the most people in Northern Ireland, will say the British Army. Um, yeah. When in actual fact, I think you'll know the figures, but 60, 70... Uh, 60%. 60% yeah. of the, all the deaths in Northern Ireland were caused, caused by Republicans. And, and the majority of the deaths of Catholics in Northern Ireland. Yes, that's right. The biggest source of, of deaths. Uh, that it would include IRA men who blew themselves up. I, one of the things about the IRA, it's, it's the, the creation of the death cult uh, of the IRA. Um, I've forgotten the figure. It's about 100 IRA men and women blew themselves up with their own bombs. Yeah. Each one of these, I don't make light of these. Every one of these deaths is a calamity for their family members. You know, you never forget the, 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 you know, the loss of a, 18, 19-year-old, 20-year-olds who have been killed, sent yeah. off on these futile bombing missions to, do, to achieve nothing. They're blowing up a shop. Now, they might kill somebody in the shop, or they might be killed themselves. I mean, every, I, I, I'm serious here. Every single death in, in the Troubles, with the, the exception of someone like the, the, the UVF satanic murderer, Lenny Murphy, I mean, his death was to be welcomed. But for, for the vast majority of the, of the deaths, they are a proper subject for real grief and real mourning and, and real analysis of why these, the, these horrors happened. You, you, you cannot look back on, on the troubles and say these are good deaths and bad deaths, with a few exceptions. These are, they, it was a human catastrophe. Now, we have to identify the authors of this catastrophe. And John, as you have rightly said, the majority of young people believe that the, most of the troubles, deaths were caused by the British Army or my, 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 the heroes of the troubles, the IUC and the UDR, who suffered extraordinary numbers of deaths and then have suffered monumental vilification and falsification, their records, that is, by, by Republican apologists. What, the, the, those great lies are the lies that are now being written to the historical record. And all of the suffering that they went through, all of the mutilations, the, 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 the horrors that their families went through, the, 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 child, the childhoods of their offspring, 
being, ter- being spent terrified about their mothers and their fathers not coming home from their, life, from their, their, their hours of duty. Hours of duty spent saving Northern Ireland from civil war. And I genuinely mean, mean this. The, the men and women of the UDR and the IUC are the real heroes of the troubles. British Army soldiers would go back to their homes in, in Britain. The, the UDR and the IUC stayed at their places of work and stayed at their home. They could be murdered going to Mass or murdered going to the, the, the Baptist or Presbyterian Church or Church of Ireland churches. They could be murdered uh, collecting or, and were murdered collecting their children from school or taking them from school. There were no circumstances in which they could not be murdered. There was an IUC man who was murdered leaving the, the, the bedside of his, his mother in the Royal Victoria Hospital. The, someone in the hospital knew that this IUC man was visiting his, his ailing mother, and as he left, they murdered him. So th- these are the terrible things that were done in the name of Ireland by the Irish Republican Army and the INLA. And the people who stood up against them were not the collaborators of the UVF and UDA assassins. They were the, the, the forces for freedom and justice and truth in Northern Ireland. And that's what one of the most passionate beliefs I have. I, I worked in Northern Ireland and I've studied this stuff too well to be in any doubt about who the, 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 the good side were and who the good side, and the, who the good people were. You, you were a journalist in Northern Ireland for how long? You were there in the 1960s through to... For, no, no, not 1960s, from 19... I, I, I first time visited Northern Ireland, I went up to participate in the Troubles in 1969. Thank God it, they, 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 I, I didn't, but I did want to, because I was a lunatic lefty. But then I went up in 1971 as a journalist and stayed there till 1978. And I thought I would save till the troubles were at an end. And I realized in 1977, 78, they were not going to end. This, would, this had the energy of, of something diabolical and it could, go, it could last for decades. And it did last for decades. And thousands of people died and many more thousands, many more hundreds, shall we say, than our, the official record state, because we don't know how many men and women took their own lives who are not in, in, in the, the, the official statistics. But we know... Many, many did. The funny thing about that is, that in terms of the reasons for the, for, for the changes in people's perceptions, I mean, I am almost 40 years of age. Sarah has regularly said that she's a similar age to me, so I'm not, I'm not revealing anything um, ridiculous about you there, Sarah. But I grew up in the late 80s, early 90s. That was when my dawning of awareness. And even by that stage, I think the IRA was mostly a busted flush. And the, the, while there were some horrendous atrocities that I remember, the, it, it, the war was in its latter stages and calming down. And so I don't even have a living memory of the worst of it, because um, even you know in the mid-80s, I was a toddler. Um, and so, so uh, you know, people younger than me comprise more than half the population of Ireland. Um, so so, the, so the, the memory of this is, it, it's been astonishingly, uh, sort of just eradicated. I mean, Sarah, I, I guess I, I speak for you when I say that as well. I mean, you, you, your memories probably extend to the, the 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 very late stage stuff, Canary Wharf and Oma and all of that kind of stuff. But you don't remember and have no memories of the days when soldiers were being lynched on the streets, for example. I, like uh, this fleeting thing, I definitely remember Oma. My dad was in politics, so it was probably a little bit different because it would have just loomed larger because of that. I remember being a kid in the back of the car and asking, what does kneecapping mean? I remember that because they were used to report kneecappings mm-hmm. um, on the news. And I, I can remember asking what that meant. But no, it was the same as you. Like it wasn't 
it was it was it wasn't at the fore of my life. It certainly featured in the background, but it wasn't it wasn't. It, it, I think if we'd been born 10 years earlier, it would have been a very different different thing. I think that's interesting, Kevin, because when you read a history book, you tend to trust it, right? You tend to trust when I when I read a book about what the, the activities of the Emperor Augustus or Hannibal or or Napoleon, I tend to trust what's in those books. But here we have a situation where within living memory for a lot of people in this country, what actually happened has been forgotten. And 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 dis- I won't say I won't say rewritten, but it's certainly been distorted. So that it had to be you know, distorted, but so it was distorted. For 1916 and 1919 to 21, 22, 23, um, the, the only certain memories were allowed to be con- conveyed. Um, Eleanor Warbrook, uh, his name probably means very little to any of your listeners, but she was one of the first victims of the trouble. She was shot dead outside Jacob's factory. She was a, a Jacob, the Jacob's factory, biscuit factory. She was a 14-year-old Protestant working-class girl. And she was standing outside the outside the the the, the, the biscuit factory. She, she, she was shouting at because she was uh, came from a unionist family. She was shouting at the um, at the insurgents, and one of them produced a revolver from the window and shot her through the head and killed her. Who remembered fourteen-year-old Eleanor Warbrook in 2016? Who remembered um, Constable Lehiff, who was murdered by? Constance Markovitz in 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 St. Stephen's Green or, or Constable O'Brien killed outside Dublin Castle. Well, I went to uh, the memorial services in 2016 for Le and O'Brien. There was none for Warbrook. No politicians were there. Mm-hmm. No politicians. Not one single politician. Some guardie were there because they owe they recognised their debt to the Dublin Metro, Metro, Metropolitan Police. But the two police officers were murdered in the opening minutes of the, the rising. They were not armed, and they were a constabulary, an unarmed constabulary, and they were murdered in cold blood. So their names vanished from the history, the popular history of the Troubles, as did Eleanor Warbrook, as did the, the names of most of the hundreds or 600 or so people who, who were killed. And the, the the sixteen or so members of the of the the, the signatories of the nineteen sixteen rising, they got state funerals. Those who had been given state funerals before were given state funerals in in twenty sixteen. But the the civilian dead, the, the those slain and slaughtered, without any one mandate given being given to their killers, they were forgotten. As were uh, the abduction and murder of many many people in from nineteen nineteen to twenty two, and that's one of the the consolations of the IRA from 1969-70-71, that they were aware of the sordid side of the IRA campaign of 1919-23. I think it's a total of, of the 500 police officers who were, who were killed in that campaign, RIC and DMP, 30 of them were killed coming out of mass. 30 of them either going to mass or coming out of mass. Of the 172 British soldiers who were killed in 1919 to 21, 50 of them were either murdered off duty or murdered as captives. So the IRA know this is what they do. This is what they will get away with doing. And I, as I said on, in, in one, in, the only interview I, I was given during this time, uh, I, I said uh, that if you want to talk about 1916, you also have to talk about its consequence, which involved the Free State soldiers executing or murdering is a better term a hundred 
anti-treatyites. A hundred men, unarmed men, were captured, taken away, and shot in cold blood. That's what you end up with once you embark on a program of civil violence against, within a democracy against people with whom you disagree. A hundred men were executed. Now, we've heard nothing about the executions in the civil war in the last year or so. And the, the, the executions began essentially about a year ago. Yeah, we've uh, 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 nothing about them. Specifically, I mean, we, we published I published a piece a couple of weeks ago about what happened to Ballyseedy in County Kerry, where 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 six anti-treaty rebels were tied to a landmine by soldiers of this state and blown up. And and I, I I you know the point I'd make is that if we heard about the Russians doing that to Ukrainian captives today, we would be horrified and be calling for an international war crimes tribunal. The state, the Irish state has never apologized for that. Never. Well, no one's apologized for anything at that time, but they do expect, the Republicans expect apologies from other sources. They expect apologies from the British for this, that, and the other. And I mean, the many Republicans were saying when the Queen came over in 2011 or whenever it was, um, she she should apologize. And when she said things that we should have done things differently or not at all, that they interpreted that as an apology. She wasn't referring to crown policy. She was referring to everyone's policy. Do not embark on this kind of thing if you're going to start doing something really wrong. And it didn't wait a minute in 2016 before they did something wrong, like killing 14-year-old Eleanor Warbrook. And I wonder how many of your listeners have ever heard her name. Well, there I, are no Warbrooks left in Ireland. They all left, as, I, as, and, as did thousands of Unionists. And that's the simple truth. The, the proportion of Catholic proportion of Northern Ireland remorselessly rose from 1921 through to today, as they're nearly 50%. The Protestant proportion of the Republic remorselessly fell. So mm-hmm. that it's indigenous Protestant population as opposed to immigrant population from France and, and Britain and, and Ireland, that indigenous population is, of the Republic that is Protestant is under 2%. Yeah, you're, the pro- you're, Catholic population in Northern Ireland is about 50%. I am the, pop- the Protestant population of the Republic uh, at the turn of the century, the turn of the 19th, 20th century, was 10%. I am somebody who broadly agrees with you on these matters, and, and which puts me in a minority, I have to say, uh, in the country, and certainly puts you in a minority. And I know there will be many listeners, Kevin, who 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 maybe find some of what you've just said uncomfortable or maybe disagree with it. But I think it shows the reason why your your voice is so missed in the country, because it is an important perspective, and it does make you think, even if you are somebody who believes that Irish independence is a legitimate aim and that the rising was justified and that those who look in it they're two different things, John. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I've always believed Irish independence was justified. The no. Irish people are quite different from the English people. And I know too well because I was raised in England. I know how indifferent the English are to Ireland. And you cannot be governed by people who are indifferent to your own welfare. And as we've seen repeatedly, Northern Secretaries of State know nothing about Northern Ireland. That idiot Karen Bradley arrived in Ireland, whatever, <laughs> five, six, seven, eight years ago. And said when she was arrived, when she after she arrived, she didn't know Catholics and Protestants voted differently. Now you must never be governed by people who can appoint someone like her as governor of Northern Ireland. That's essentially what she was. So the independence is an essential part of being Irish. You cannot you cannot be governed by people who do not care for you. You cannot be governed by people who are not, do not passionately care for your future. You must take that future yourself, which is what 
John Redmond and the Home Rule Party had achieved by 1914. It wasn't complete, and it still isn't complete. It couldn't be complete while the Ulster Unionists felt so separate from Irish national- nationalism. But the, the, Ireland had legal home rule when the rising took place, and they threw, the Republicans threw that all aside, and instead of home rule, we got a war in which thousands of people died and which turned this country into an economic wasteland. And the first thing the independent free state government had to do was cut public salaries by 10% because they had no money. And do you know one of the outcomes of the treaty negotiations was Ireland inherited the British war debt for fighting Germany, our gallant allies of 1916. Now, almost nobody in Ireland knows that the free state inherited part of the British war debt. Did you know that, John? No, I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, and we also paid the RIC pensions. So we no, inherited no. The, the pension uh, debt of the servants of the Crown, the RIC and the DMP, and similarly, we inherited the, our share of the war debt from the First World War, fighting the people who were acclaimed in 1916 as our gallant allies. And incredibly, in 2016, an army officer went around, not the same army officer, went to every single school in the country reading out the proclamation, which included that obscene line hailing our gallant allies. Our gallant allies in before the Great War had murdered over a quarter of a million Africans in southwest Africa and Tanganyika in separate uprisings. They'd driven them, the Africans, into deserts where they were forced to drown, were forced to die of thirst, or they were slaughtered by German troops. These were the people, the monstrous regime, which the proclamation hailed as their gallant allies. And in 2016, this obscene declaration was, was repeated. And there is no excuse for that. Enough historians were available to have told the government at the time what the Germans had done. And not merely didn't have to go to Irish historians. If they had gone to the, um, the, the German ambassador to Belgium, he apologized in 19, 2014 for the thousands of Belgian civilians who had been murdered in, in, in 1914 by German troops, over 5,000 Belgian civilians who were captured by German troops were murdered in, 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 2000, in, in, in 1914, and something like 100,000 um, Belgian civilians were taken home and slave labor, and something like 20,000 Belgians were murdered during the occupation or died as slave labor. Okay, so this is a regime that was completely unacceptable in, 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 by the standards of 1914 and 18, and was even more so uh, uh, unacceptable in 2016, yet we were reading out to every school child in Ireland the notion that these were our gallant allies. Well, there we will have to leave it. But I think your perspective there and the point I was making was was, was that there will obviously be those who, who disagree with you. I, I tend, I, for the record, and I've, I've never shied away from this, I tend to take your, your views on this, um, tend to reflect mine. I, I suspect Sarah has a slightly different perspective and we'll discuss that at another stage, Sarah, because we're kind of out of time. But I think, uh, but, but that said, I think your views reflect the, the, the loss that you are to Irish public life because it is a perspective that should make us all think. And it doesn't happen in this country. And what we were saying at the start of the podcast was that 
you know, this conformity of thought, this one way of thinking, uh, infects not only our perspectives of, of sort of the origins of the nation state itself, but every current issue that we have is viewed through one lens only. And people are terrified to say things as controversial. And I put that word in inverted commas as what you've just said there, Kevin. And that's why I, I think it's an important perspective. Sorry, so we haven't, uh, Sarah, I feel um, I, I, I've been rabbiting on too much and I haven't heard much from you. And are we running out of time? Can we hear anything from you before somebody grots me? No, no. I mean, I, John's right in that I do have different views, but the thing that I'm most passionate about is that we have them all aired. I mean, this is the problem. Like, I, I want people who disagree with me on everything. I mean, I, I'm not disagreeing specifically with any of your points. I think you've, you've, you've made some really interesting points. And there were some things in there that I actually just simply didn't know anything about, to be perfectly honest. But um, I, I, I just think that the, the, the whole discourse is, 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 the, is, less, is lesser from not having conversations about not just this, um, from the point of view of potentially having a Sinn Féin government, as you said, coming up, but also all of the other topics that are that we discuss, we're totally one sided in our debate. We do we we cancel and and get rid of people who have you know views that we don't like or make us feel uncomfortable. And so, like the thing that I'm most passionate about is is having uncomfortable conversations. And if they make me uncomfortable, if they make you uncomfortable, that probably means that they're worth having. And if they made you uncomfortable, yeah. listener, that is the that is the the point. But we hope you'll come back next week and be discomforted again. I want to put on record my uh, immense thanks to Kevin to taking for taking the time to yeah. do this and for sharing his perspective with us. Um, my thanks as ever to Sarah for for being an excellent co-host. I have to say I am annoyed though at the amount of comments that come in on this podcast praising Sarah and not praising me. That is <laughs> that is becoming a little bit of an issue for my ego. So so somebody could say how great I am just once. That'd be fantastic. Uh, I'm ki- I- I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But uh, anyway, thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, listeners. And next week we will be back once more for another edition of the week that really was.